0: Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, and we're going to be looking today at verses 7 through 12. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. All right, let's pray, and then we'll read this. Oh God, we pray for illumination now. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us grace to do justice to your text, and not just to do justice to it, O God, but that you would apply it to us. Lord, you know us, you know our frames, you know our our situations. Lord, you know how badly we need the things of you, so give us grace, O God. Give your people grace today to have the Holy Spirit apply your word to us and be with those who are not your people today. I pray that today would be the day that they call upon the name of the Lord through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 3 verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. So if you go back to verse 7, okay, look at verse 7. So the verse 7 actually helps us to point back to the last thing that we talked about. So verse 7 says Jesus withdrew. A better word for, for that, it's not withdrew, it's actually fled. Jesus fled. And I'm saying that because in different places in the scriptures, for instance whenever Joseph takes Mary and, and Jesus and flees to Egypt, the word there is the same word that's, that's used here. So he doesn't just withdraw, he actually flees. Okay, there's another word um, or another place this is mentioned is in the Old Testament, the Greek Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is typically translated in Hebrew, but in the Greek, it's the same word for when David flees from Saul's spear. Remember, they're eating at table, and Saul gets mad at David and tries to kill him. He launches his spear at David, and it says that David fled from that spear. Okay, this is the same word. So Jesus is not withdrawing. It's not like he's just casually backing away and going somewhere else. He's fleeing. He's getting out of there as fast as he can. Um, And why? Well, we just read why. In verse 6, it says, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him so last five times or last five sermons we've seen that there has been conflict and there's been controversy in the life of christ he's intentionally in a sense because he wants to proclaim things about himself he's intentionally aggravating people and especially the pharisees and the leaders um, for the for the purpose of declaring who he is and so now he's in a situation where he's got to get out of there and it does show us a few things Um, it is okay at times to flee persecution You know, there are times when even as Christians in the early church, you know, there's different reasons why this came up. But in the early church, the first 300, 400 years of the church, plug for the church history class, because eventually what you'll see in the early church is from this point, there's going to be 10 waves of persecution leading up until 310. Okay, so from the year... Uh, right after Christ dies until 310 there's 10 major waves of persecution but what had happened is that it became ingrained in the Christian culture that to be a true Christian you will be persecuted and to be a very like a really true Christian someone who's super spiritual you'll be martyred and so in certain circumstances these guys would actually go and intentionally look for ways to be persecuted ways to be martyred if you uh, if you've ever heard of origin he was an early church father but his uh, his father was martyred when he was a young teenager he wanted to be martyred with his father and so he was trying to run out of the house but his mom i guess it was in the morning or something his mom ends up hiding all of his clothes all of his clothes so that he has nothing to wear so he won't go and follow his dad into martyrdom because he's naked and so he doesn't follow but it just shows that was the that was the the mindset of the christians at the time they it was almost like a thirst to be persecuted a thirst to be martyred for the faith Okay, so there are times when that might happen, but there are other times when it's, it's a good thing to withdraw or to flee from persecution if you can avoid it. Doesn't mean to compromise by any means, right? Doesn't mean that you should not have a backbone or stand firm against these things. It's just to say, in certain circumstances, hey, it's okay to, to, to play the long game and do something else, right? As long as there's no compromise. And with Christ, there was no compromise here. Um, so he where does he go, though? Check this out. So he goes back to the sea. Now, the last time that we saw Christ at the sea specifically was when he called his disciples, James, John, Andrew, and Peter. So he goes back to the sea. Now, what's interesting is he's been in the area of Capernaum this whole time. Well, Capernaum is a town on the sea. So whenever it tells us in verse um, verse 7, Jesus fled or Jesus withdrew to the sea, it's not saying he was not on the sea originally. It's saying he went to a different part. So most of, the, most of the commentators, when you look at a map, he's probably up somewhere in the northern part, somewhere where it's a little more isolated, desolate, where nobody's really going to, uh, to, to mess with you, which is important because of what happens next. Okay? So he goes there with his disciples. Goes there with his disciples. But then look what happens. A great multitude from Galilee followed. Well, that's pretty good, right? It's got a great multitude from Galilee. But then look what happens next. And from Judea. Okay. And from Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is way south. That's, that's a long ways away. Um, in fact, I wrote it down somewhere. It was something like, it was something like 200 miles, um, 150 miles. So if, if it, that's further than Lubbock, Texas. 150 miles. So people are walking. They're not driving in their their cars, right? They're walking this far to get to where Jesus is. They're going way out to the middle of nowhere, and in a minute we'll see what they're doing when they get there, as far as their motives go. Um, But you know what this reminds us of, or it should remind us of? See, there was a situation, and we've talked about David a few times already in the Gospel of Mark, how there's a lot of overlap or similarity between the life of David and the life of Jesus, especially in the early life of Jesus. David, before he's king, he's anointed as king, before he's publicly anointed as king, he's He's privately anointed as king, and yet he has the actual authorities chasing him down and trying to kill him. And so, David, if you if you if you read the story, um, it's in First Samuel twenty-two. What happens is is remember we talked about how David and his disciples went and ate the bread. They're not supposed to eat from the holy bread, and the priest gave the holy bread to him. Well, what happened after that is Saul found out about it, and Saul sent his his soldiers to go and destroy all of those priests that gave the bread to David except for one. One guy escaped, Ahimelech. Everybody else got wiped out. And when David and his men, after they take that bread, knowing that Saul is coming after them, what they do is they themselves flee to a place that is desolate, namely a cave. And this is what it says in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. After David and his men flee, it says, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, gathered to David, and he became captain over them. So even as David's fleeing, everyone from these desolate areas are trying to find where David is and that's what you see happening with Christ right now there's no doubt Christ is the greater David that's the point he's the greater king he's the king that was to come That was promised to David. Okay, so here you have Christ, though. Christ is, these people are coming from north, south, literally. And that's why it's here. That's why Mark, he doesn't just say, you know, everybody from Israel was coming. He intentionally marks out the places where these people are coming from. Judea, Galilee, Jerusalem, Idumea, Jordan, the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, which is in the desert. So everybody from all different parts, east, west, north, south, everybody's coming to, to Jesus. And... You know why this is important? Because these are not just Jewish people. There are pagans. There are Jewish, irreligious Jews. These are people from all different types of ethnicities, from all different types of backgrounds. And they're all searching Jesus. They're all looking for Jesus. Now, why is that important? Because what is the Great Commission going to show us? In fact, if you go back to, uh, to Genesis... If you, if you, we don't have time to trace it all out, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 12 and I'm going to go to Genesis 12 with me for a second we're going to map out a little of this, okay? Because what was the purpose of God going back to the very beginning? The very beginning. Okay, so Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Abraham is a pagan. Abram here, he's a pagan. He doesn't love God. It says in Joshua that he was a worshiper of false gods. He's a worshiper of idols. And yet, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, something is promised to Abram. Actually, three things. Okay, God comes and calls Abram, who's a pagan, and he says, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show You And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That last part, think of that. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God here is promising Abraham three things, a seed, land, and blessings to all the nations. A seed, land, blessing to all the nations. Now, you're like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking, right? Now, who is the seed, though? Well, when you're looking at the Old Testament... You should interpret the Old Testament with the New Testament, right? So how is Paul, how is Jesus, how are they interpreting what's going on back here with what God is doing with Abraham? Well, if you go to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians 3, and Paul explicitly brings this up. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. So these promises are spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, into your seed. And then he tells us who the seed is. That is Christ. Christ is the seed, this promise to Abraham. How do I know that? Well, look over here in verse 8 of chapter 3. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. How is that a gospel proclamation? Right? Think about it. So when God goes to Abraham, it says, Abraham, all the nations are going to be blessed through your seed. How is that a gospel proclamation? You know how? The seed is Christ. Seed is Christ. Who are the people that are Abraham's seed? Look at verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. If you have faith in Christ, whether you're—and this is why in verse seven it's so important—or verse eight, for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. This idea of coming into the church by faith does not begin in the New Testament. People in the Old Testament were, were saved by faith. Abraham believed God; it was counted to him as righteousness. People are coming in. Abraham's servants are in the household of Abraham, and it talks about how Abraham's servants are people part of the ecclesia of the church, and they're pagans. They worship the same gods that Abraham did at one time. So from the very beginning, you have Gentiles coming in. Now, when they come in, what do they have to do? Well, they have to be circumcised. They have to live by the standards, right? Just like when when a pagan, when a Gentile comes into the church, well, what happens? Well, you're baptized, right? It's not like you just continue being your your heathen way. You get, you're saved, you're converted. And now as Christians, we have obligations, commandments that we in Christ are called to do. Husbands, love your, your wives, Children, obey your parents, right? We have commandments. We're not saved by these commandments. In the Old Testament, they were not saved by those commandments. They were saved by faith alone. But in the process, there's things that that they have to do. Why is this important? Because when God says, and right here it says the same thing, when it says that all the nations will be blessed in you, in Abraham, how is that possible? You know how that's possible? We're seeing that in Mark right now. So if you go back to Mark, this is a foreshadowing. of Chapter 3, this is a foreshadowing of what is to come in the Great Commission. Why? Because you have people from east, west, north, south, Gentile, Jew, pagan, everything in between, male, female, black, white, yellow. Everybody is coming to Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean they're in the church, as we'll see in a minute. It doesn't mean they're coming with the right motives. But it is a foreshadowing of what the gospel is going to do as the gospel goes out in the Great Commission. Christ says to go into what? Disciple the nations. So how are the nations blessed? Through the gospel. How are all the nations, how are all these people blessed? Through the gospel. That's what you're seeing here. All these people, a great multitude, they're coming in because Christ is there. And you'll see this later on. I mean, there's so much. I do want to look at one thing, Revelation chapter 7. So now you've seen it in Genesis and you see it now in Revelation, Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, etc. Okay, that was the point of this whole thing. And so when God promises land to Abraham, that was always meant to transcend just that physical, literal slice of land. Just like seed was meant to transcend. It says in Hebrews that Abraham was looking for a heavenly country, a heavenly city. It supersedes all of these things, right? So that's what you're having here. You're having insight, you're having a little taste of what's to come. The fact that here we are in Clovis preaching the same gospel that Jesus Christ was preaching here on the the, the side of the sea here okay so now look at this okay so here's the other thing though how are all these people hearing about Christ that's important. Think about that. How are all these people hearing about Christ? They don't have They don't have Twitter, they don't have Facebook, they're not texting, they're not calling. It's word of mouth, and we saw this already. Whenever people are gathering it's through the word of mouth. So people are spreading the word, things are happening, things are, are, are going about, and again we're seeing the means of God. God brings about these, these activities through people. So we believe that God is sovereign, God is sovereign in salvation, God saves the uttermost, every person he has called from before the foundation of the world, every person he's chosen, every person he's elected, and yet God uses means fallible human beings to go and to share those good things about Christ with people and in doing so people things happen things come about okay um, and then and then here's the thing though here's well, I do want to point out this okay so if you imagine Jesus and 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 I'm saying this because this is very relevant for me it's very convicting for me okay and this is this happens twice in the life of Christ okay so he withdraws or flees we saw he flees okay now In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, he's probably trying to get away from everything, get away from the crowd, get away from the bustle, get away from all the noise and the clamor. And yet, the second he gets away, he can't get away, right? Everyone's still gathering. It's the same thing when he gets on a boat after finding John the Baptist dies. He gets on a boat. He's trying to, he takes his disciples, and he tells them, let's go and rest a while. And the second they get to the other side, the crowd's already there, and that's where he feeds the 5,000. This man gets no rest. He has no rest in his life except when he tries to go and pray. He gets alone. He has to wake up before dawn, before everybody else. He goes and he prays. And even then, right, the disciples run over. And they're like, Jesus, where are you? You got to come back, man. He can't get away. Now, I'm saying this is convicting because you see how Christ answers this. Christ never gets impatient. He never loses his cool. He never talks about like, hey, this is my time, guys. I need some, I need some me time. He never does that. It's amazing. <laughs> and so... Um, Like I said, as far as my life is concerned, and and I'm assuming your life as well, right? At times, we have this this state of, of mind where we think, okay, finally, I get some time to myself, and then it's interrupted and then the flesh rises up, you're like, no, right? Or even if you have something, even just the daily schedule, you have this schedule in mind. I remember when uh, growing up, I would, I would call my dad or something, and, and he'd be right in the middle of something, and you could tell he was, he, he always acted most of the time in a, in a nice way, but you could tell, like, I was interrupting him. And yet, but I'm thinking now as, as, a, as, as an adult, you know, and you have kids yourself, and you're like, all right, man, you do have to get things done during the day, and yet at the same time, there's this tension, And so for Christ, though, he always handles it in the right way. He always loves his neighbor as himself. It's amazing. So just a little side note there. All right, look at the next part, though, in verse 9. Okay, so 7, verse 8, we talked there. Okay, verse 9, and he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd. You know why? Okay, so when you think of Christ, in fact, you might have some paintings that show this. I don't know. We don't like the paintings on the walls. I hope Westminster, we can exit that out, right? No, they're fine. It's, it's not the paintings themselves. It's, um, anyways, here's the thing, okay? Just scratch that. If you think of most ideas or I, or, or, or images of Christ... Okay, you think he's in this bucolic area and he's got these lambs coming to him and he's got the children, everybody's sitting down nice and neat and everything's kind of calm, everything's peaceful. You have Jesus in the middle who's just kind of calmly sitting there and and discoursing, right? Well, what you have in the scriptures, okay, look at this. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. Now, I want you to think about what the scene would look like. Okay. So the words here that are being used, just to give you an idea. Okay. The word crowd there literally means crush or press. Okay. So in verse nine, um, because of the crush. He says, get a boat ready for me because of the crush, because of the the pressing in. Okay, so he has nowhere to go. He has no room to breathe. Okay, and then the next part is, um, the next part where it says... Verse 9, he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him. You know what the word there is? Literally, they were falling in front of him. They were mobbing him. They were falling upon him. They were mobbing him, falling upon him, crushing him, pressing against him. Now you have not only these people who are not demon-possessed, but you also have people who are demon-possessed. Now, how are they acting? Look at this. Verse, uh, Verse 10, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout. So you have a crowd that's mobbing him. Why are they? Think about this. Think about from their perspective, man. These people are frenzied. They are desperate. They have no way. They're coming to him because he's a healer at this point. They might, they might, you know, later on, maybe some will be saved or, but for right now they're coming because they see him as a healer, somebody who can help them with their physical infirmities. They don't have doctors like we have them. They don't have, they don't have medicine and all this, right? So the only way that most of these people can be healed is if they go to him and have something happen to them by touching him or by him touching them. This is a frenzied group and there's a lot of people there. So you can imagine this is not just a bucolic scene. You can imagine if you're sick or your loved ones are sick and you have no remedy and there's a whole lot of other people going to this man, you're going to be in the middle of the mob trying to get to him too because it's life or death. This is a crazy pandemonium. It really is. There's no doubt about it. And then you have demons who are shouting, right? They're they're screaming they're falling down before him. So what kind of scene is this, right? So if you want to have a good painting, paint something like that, where it's just just frenetic. Everything's unhinged. And here Christ is, and Christ, Christ doesn't even, his main purpose of coming as we've seen this, coming to earth when he comes here. He doesn't want to just, he's not a healer primarily, right? He heals people, but primarily, man, he wants to preach and he wants to teach. Which is why he says, look, get me a boat ready because this is, this is crazy. I need, I need to teach them. I need to teach them. Why? Because ultimately God can heal you and we know that God does heal people, but you're still going to die. You're still going to die of something, right? Christ knows that. The way these people are going to be healed is by hearing about the the things of God and by God converting them. Okay. So that's why it's primary or primary, but You see this, that this is, uh, this is, and, and this is something for us to ask as well. You know, so we see that Christ is doing great things. And that's, that's, we see that it's, look, it's a good thing to go to Christ. That is the right person to go to. When you're in distress, when you have trials, when you have bad things in your life, he's the only, he's the right guy to go to. He's the person to go to. But why ultimately do we go to him? Right? Is it just for these things? Is it just to be healed? Is it just to have a better life, an easier life, a more comfortable life, a more satisfying life? Is that the reason why we go to them? Right? Because oftentimes, whenever somebody is called to the faith, called to Christ, and they're they're converted, they're born again, um, it it's usually the opposite. It's a harder life. It's a difficult life. It's a life of persecution. It's a life of trial. That's why all these people that you see, this mob that's right now surrounding Christ, they're there because they want to. They want Christ to heal them. Maybe they're there because they want to see Christ heal other people, and they just want to be around the energy and the excitement. At the same time. When Christ begins giving his parables and he begins telling them, listen, this is difficult. You have to give your entire life if you're going to follow me. You have to suffer. Remember why John is writing this book or Mark is writing this book. He's writing this book to Roman Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. Who are being thrown into the arena. Who are being covered with pitch and burnt and lit on fire at Nero's garden parties. That's who's reading these pages. Okay, so when they're reading this and they're like, well, wait a minute. Well, Christ, He's healing these people, but why hadn't He healed me? He's healing these people, but you know, tomorrow morning, I've, I've been sentenced to go appear, me and my children and my wife. We, we've been sentenced to appear in the arena where we have to fight with these tigers and lions. And they're going to sew us up in these bags so that we don't have a chance, right? So you see, the point, though, is this, okay? As Christ is doing these things, they, if, and we too, we can. They have the, the wrong idea of who Christ is and what his main purpose is and what the point of um, the Christian faith is. So they're coming and that's the right thing to do, right? When you're in trial, when you have trials and stress, go to Christ. He's the only one to go to. But, right, but what if he says no? What if he doesn't heal you? What if he doesn't give you what you want? What if he says, okay, I'll heal you, but guess what? For the rest of your life, like, like poor Jacob, you're going to have a limp. You're going to suffer, right? At that point, what do we do? Do we say, okay, then it's not worth it. I'll go somewhere else. I'll try something else. See, that's, that's how you have to look at this, where it's like, all right, just because he has a lot of people at this point, just like, you know, just like, and that's why I mentioned earlier to start out, just because, you know, let's say the whole room in here was filled. Okay, that's great, but how are we filling the room? You know, it's easy to fill a church. It's easy to get a lot of people to come to an event. But what are we doing? What are we using to get them in here? You see, that? that's, that's, that's the catch right there. That's always the catch. And so Christ here at this point, he's healing people, but he also knows they're coming because I'm a healer. They have the wrong idea of who I am, of my main mission. Okay, so that's why um, in verse 10, he says, Well, in verse 9, he says, hey, get a boat ready for me. And you see why, if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, it shows us some of his technique here. It says, he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. He got into a boat in the sea. And by the way, they did, They used to teach sitting down. So everybody, you read some of these accounts of, of these early fathers, man, like Augustine and some of these guys. These poor people. And, and look, I try to keep the sermons to about 35, 40 minutes max, all right? These people, these were like three-hour sermons, two-hour sermons, no air conditioning in the middle of Africa. And everyone stands up except the guy teaching. <laughs> he gets to sit down. Okay, so and 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 uh, so you can imagine everyone's cramped together, and you're standing up through this. So, anyways, uh, but this is, that is the way that they they uh, they they taught. So he's he he has the boat ready though. Okay, and then verse ten. Um, notice he does heal them. Okay, so a boat's getting ready. He does heal them, for he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him. Um, and then I want to look at this next part. Okay. When it comes to these demons, verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, now we've seen these unclean spirits happen already. We've already seen them in different places in Mark. And we've already seen that part of Christ's mission when he comes is to vanquish demons. He's a demon hunter. He's a serpent crusher, a snake crusher. He is, he really is. Going back to the garden, the snake in the garden. That's one of his purposes when he comes to earth. And First John it tells us that he came that he might destroy the works of the devil. So that's where we're seeing a lot of this. Okay, So when Christ comes, verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. Have we seen anybody else in the gospel of Mark actually declare that Christ is the son of God? Nobody. There was one other being or person that was the father. The Father declares Christ to be the Son of God. The demons declare Christ to be the Son of God. No other people declare Christ to be the Son of God at this point. Now, ironically in a sense, if you turn to Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 15, towards the end of the, the whole gospel. And then look at verse 39. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'll, I'll have to check, but I think this is the only other reference in the gospel of mark anyways where someone declares him to be the son of god aside from demons or the father Um, verse 39 when the centurion who was standing right in front of him so he's a pagan he's a roman he's a gentile okay when the centurion who was standing right in front of him christ on the cross christ is on the cross you have this roman gentile roman soldier He saw the way he breathed his last. And he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is a claim of deity. It's a Christological claim that Christ is the son of God. He's deity. And so what you're having here is this Okay, so think about it. So they're seeing him. They're falling down before him and they're shouting. They see him. They fall down before him and they shout. You know what that reminds me of? Philippians chapter two. Think of this. Okay. Philippians chapter two. Go there. I think we preached on this once. Uh, we did, actually, around Christmas time. Philippians 2. Okay, now look at this. And that wheat fills too. So, so wheat us uh, wheat fields, uh, Philippians chapter 2. Okay, look at this. Okay, so this is the this is verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, remember, and then it gives us this example of who Christ is. He's saying, hey, listen, don't be selfish. Don't do anything from uh, empty conceit. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Why? Because Christ himself did this. He came in the flesh. He took on flesh. He lived among us. And then verse, um, verse 9, it says, for this reason also, because he was obedient, even to death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That's what the demons are doing right now. They're bowing and look what they're doing of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means the totality of the entire universe, people in hell, everything. Verse 11, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I don't, so, so you know, you think, well, why, why, why would, wait a minute, why would these people in hell, why would these people on the day of judgment, whenever that takes place, why are they going to proclaim that Christ is Lord, that Christ is the Son of God? Well, in a sense, it's the same reason over here. It's almost from anguish and torment that they declare this they're not happy about it but they're declaring it they're 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 saying what it is you know um that's like c.s lewis where he talks about the gates of the hell uh, gates of hell being locked from the inside you know people in hell it's not like they're clamoring to get out it's not like they're saying god please just let me out and i'll bend the knee to you no in hell what happens their rebellion against god gets worse and worse and worse and worse why? Because they're sin. Listen, if you're sinning, if you're rebellious against God in this life, when you have friends in a sunny day and most of us have dogs or most of y'all have dogs and things, you know, look, God gives us a lot of good things in this life. And this is a fallen universe and we don't deserve any of it. We're fallen creatures in sin. And yet God bestows gifts to us. Well, in hell, all of these good common grace kinds of gifts are going to be taken away. There's going to be no more friends or family or dogs or Snickers bars or anything like that. Nothing like that, right? So in hell, they're gnashing their teeth, but these demons, it's almost like they can't help themselves. These are unearthly beings that are bowing the knee to Jesus Christ, not because they want to follow Jesus Christ, not because they want to worship Jesus Christ. But spiritually, they know who he is. This is, and, and again, this is an eschatological confession of faith, meaning in the end time, this is what you're seeing, this is what's going to happen on, on, a, on, a, on a universal scale. You're seeing it happen right now, specifically individually with these demons. So they're seeing him, they fall down before him, and they shout, and then what does Christ do in verse 12? He earnestly warns them not to tell who he was. And we've already seen this a little bit as far as this messianic secret, as far as why does Jesus say, hey, don't go and tell everybody. Why does he say this? We're seeing why he tells why why he says this because there's a sense in which he's he's trying to have crowd control I mean you can you can only do so much right this is already it's this is a um, it's this is a dumpster fire this is something look this thing in a sense if you remember John the Baptist why is John the Baptist in prison right here on at this scene why Josephus tells us why because not only is he calling out the uh, Herod Herod for, for, for taking his brother's wife. So he's calling him out for that. But Josephus also tells us the real reason. And it's not to say that the, the, the thing that you see in scripture is not a real reason. But the thing behind this, the backdrop behind what's going on is that John the Baptist had amassed such a following that they were concerned about riots breaking out. Herod's concerned that there's going to be a riot that either, that either, uh, either throws him out and installs someone else. Or that the Romans are going to hear about it and come in, and they themselves will throw him out and install somebody else, so it's crowd control, so he takes John the Baptist, takes him into prison, and eventually beheads him. here we're saying that Jesus has surpassed John the Baptist. John the Baptist did not have people coming from the north, south, east, west, desert, pagans, gentiles. He had a lot of people it tells us that everyone from Jerusalem and Judea, but he doesn 't have these people from the outskirts coming. And they are, they are in Herod's territory, okay? So number one is crowd control. You can only do so much, okay? Word's getting out already. You can only do so much. And then number two, and this is, you know, a lot of times, a lot of people say this, and I've tried to, I'm trying to, I'm wrestling with this myself. I'll, I'll tell you, um, you know, a lot of, in, in these cases, they know more than I do as far as some of these commentators go. But, but a lot of times they'll mention also the fact that these are demons. And he doesn't want demons going around proclaiming who he is. Uh, And I personally have a hard time going with that. I don't see why he would be concerned about that, to be honest. Um, But there it is on the table. Now, I want to end today by this. Okay, If you look at verse 10, and we've already had some applications as we go through this. But if you look at verse 10, okay, it says, He had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Now, the word for affliction there is scourge or corrections. Scourgings and corrections were chastisement. That's another word. So in the Greek, that's the word that you would see there where it says the result that all those who had scourgings, all those who had been chastised, all those who had been corrected, pressed around him. You know why he's saying that? Because in those days, there was a very strict connotation between physical illness and this judgment of God upon you. And so the idea here is that when you go to Christ, or put it this way, when you're, when you're unwell, it's because God's judgment is upon that person. Now, we see biblically that that's not true all the time. You see, like in Job. Job's whole, The whole thing with Job is that their friends are accusing Job of doing something wrong, and Job's like, I didn't do anything wrong. They're like, well, then why, why is God's hand against you so obviously? He's so, like, I don't know. I don't know why. But we know why, right? And then God comes in and actually justifies what Job is saying. He's like, yeah, Job didn't do anything wrong. You guys are wrong. Job is done. Job's, Job's fine. So that's not always the case. So if you're sick or whatever, it doesn't mean you don't have faith. It doesn't mean you don't have um, doesn't mean that, that that um it's it's God's hand of judgment upon you because of something you've done or haven't done. Okay? Here's the thing, though. We do know for a fact, ultimately, all sickness. All disease, all mayhem, all malady. We're talking in the catechism class about wars, all these things that happen in life. We know that ultimately they go back and they have a root cause of the same cause, which is Adam's fall and our sin, right? So in other words, the reason why um, things happen in our life is because of sin. Whether, no matter what, I mean, it doesn't matter, right? So in other words, whatever happens in my life, even though it might not be God directly saying, okay, because you've done this, now you have this illness. No, right? But what is the case is that when I get sick or you get sick, when our bodies start to break down, that is a direct consequence of the sin that happened back in the garden and then our subsequent sin after that. So all of these people are pressing to Christ. Christ is trying to back up in the boat so he can teach them. When he starts to teach them, what does he teach them? Well, we know know what he teaches them. uh, I think it's chapter 1, verse 38. Yeah, he says... He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. So we see there that he comes to preach, but we see elsewhere that he comes to preach the kingdom of God. Um, Yes, look at verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why is that so necessary? And what does that have to do with these guys pressing around Jesus and falling down before him and, and trying to grab him and, and, and everything else? Well, the same intensity that these people have about their physical illness, that's the intensity we should have about our spiritual illness when it comes to Christ. They have the right idea physically in a sense. They have the right idea. They're going to the right person. They know that he alone can do this. But spiritually. Here's the question. We've, man, we, Man, we, we should definitely have this same intensity, this same, this same obsession about getting to Christ to deliver us from our spiritual dilemma, our spiritual sin. He's the only one who can do anything about it. You and I are going to die. We know that. I don't care how many times you get healed in this life. You are going to die. That's the ultimate problem that we have. It's not this sickness or that sickness or this bad day or that bad day or this or that. I'm not downplaying that. But ultimately, the problem that you and I have, have is death. And if there's no remedy for death, then none of us, what do we do, right? We eat, drink, and be buried for tomorrow. We, we die and just do what you think live or do what you want live it up. But we know that's not the case. The reason Christ came and he himself died was to deliver us from death. The reason he's even now going through all of these sufferings In his life on earth was so that he can deliver us ultimately from the ultimate suffering, which is death and the judgment of God because of our sin. That's what this is all about. And so as you see these people desperate to get to Christ, in the same way we've got to have, spiritually speaking, the same desperation, the same zeal, the same mindset where this is the only person who can help me, who can deliver me, who can do anything about the sins that are in my life, even as Christians, the sins that I need to be cleansed of, the sins that I need to be gone in my life. He's the one to go to. And especially if you're not in Christ, right? Where else are you going to go? Peter says that even after they're hanging out with Christ. Where else are we going to go, Christ? You have the words of eternal life. He's the only way to be delivered from death. He's the only way to be delivered from hell. Your good works can't, they can't do it. (laughs) There's none who does good. No, not one. There's none who does good. If you don't believe me, I promise you we can talk afterwards. and It'll take me five seconds to demonstrate that. That you and no one else, me, our grandmas, I had a really sweet grandma. But she was not a good person in the sense of none of us are good, right? None of us are good. So that means that God, who is a good judge, is going to judge correctly. That's not a good thing for us. But when Christ goes to the cross, Christ himself is judged in our place. So as they do, as you see this intensity to get to Christ, let's do the same thing about our sin and then even after we've been born again, after we've been saved listen, who amongst us even now can say that we've been delivered from, we, we, you know, we're sinless we don't sin anymore, no, we've constantly got to be going to Christ, constantly pressing in on Christ with this same attitude and you're like, man, I don't, I don't know if I can do that, you know I, 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 some days I'm cold, some days I, I don't have that, that zeal, a lot of days I don't have that zeal go to Christ Right? Go to Christ. Even about our lack of zeal, go to Christ about it. Everything. Go to Christ. He's the only one who can heal us. He's the only one. Look, and and read the words that Christ has given us. Read these words and go to Christ. And and be like these people. And so this is kind of the backdrop. As we go on from here, this is kind of the the backdrop. Remember, the last time Christ was at the lake, he called his disciples. He called the four disciples. So next week, we're going to see that Christ calls other disciples to him, and they start following him as well. Okay, so turn to Christ. If you're not in Christ, if you are in Christ, keep going to Christ. Don't give up. Don't, Don't give up. Okay? Keep going to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that you don't that you don't tell us to stand back, that you don't keep us away from you, but that you delight when we do seek you. You, you delight when we knock, and you delight when, when we come and, and we, we cry out to you. We lift our voices to you. And, oh, God, that you would give us that zeal and the hunger that these people have. They know the right place to go. They know who to go to, Lord. Give us that same zeal, that same desire to go to the one the only one who can save us from our sins and then having been saved, the only one who can help us and continue giving us the grace and the knowledge and the help that we need as we walk this life and go through this life with all of its uh, struggles and turmoils and the things um, that are constantly bombarding us, our flesh, the devil, this world. So God, give us that grace. Give us that hunger. Be with those who don't know you here. Lord, we we know that, that Inevitably, there will be people who don't know you. And so, Lord, we pray that your grace would find them, that your grace would, would call them out and mark them out, and that you would save them, open their eyes. And, Lord, give us grace as your people. Help us to grow in these things. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the life that Christ lived. Thank you that... That he didn't turn these people away, but that rather he not only healed them, but spoke the words of eternal life to them. Thank you that you're still the God who does that today. Thank you that you're a God who never changes, that you're not different than you were. Thank you for that. Thank you that we can praise the same God that Abraham praised and that Moses praised and that David praised and that, that Christ praised when he was on earth and that Paul and all these others who have gone before us. Thank you that this is the same God and we praise you today in Jesus name. Amen.